And I couldn't agree with you more. And and uh, I'd also say too that uh, I'm I know you're a very goal oriented person, and so am I. Um, so you're moving towards something in in your immediate future, and you may have a long term goal as well. But it's things may happen along the way that that modify your plan. Uh, but what I want to say is this: it's amazing as we're sitting here today that probably neither one of us could have written this script. You couldn't have sat down back there when you got your job at Ford originally and said, "Here's what I'm going to do, and here how this here's how this is going to play out, and I'm going to make that happen." I could have never done that. Uh, right. Sat down at whatever age and said, "I'm going to write this out. What's going to happen here?" And we're going to be sitting here at this table today discussing it. Uh, it. There's just no way. That's a wonderful, miraculous type of experience that is life itself. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Not Almost There podcast. It is so great to be with you today. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please do so. It means a ton to us. I'm your host, Joe Chura, and today's episode is up there as one of my favorite conversations. I was fortunate enough to be able to sit down with Emmy Award-winning broadcast journalist Alan Kraszewski in person in Naperville, Illinois, not too far from our homes, at a restaurant called Empire. Thank you, Empire. Big shout out for hosting us. It was an incredible morning and I can't thank you enough. If you're a Chicagoan, you know Alan's name. You know he is synonymous with trust, reliability, and ABC7. He's been a news anchor for almost 40 years. And while the news, its content, and digging into the truth in media is part of our conversation, what I love most about our exchange is Alan's personal story. Today, he and I talk about his upbringing and how a horrible tragedy changed the trajectory of his life and ultimately gave him stability that he otherwise would not have had. I'm going to go and just jump right into this conversation. So if you're somewhere that you're able to get your shoes on, head outside and put on those earphones and listen. If not, jump on the treadmill. Either way, we're going to rock. So here we go. Welcome, Alan, to the Not Almost There podcast. It is so good to be with you today. Oh, it's great to be with you too, Joe. Thanks so much. Thanks for uh, inviting me here, and uh, it's great to be with you. I, I love what you're doing. Oh, ditto, and I can't wait to, to get into your story and everything you've done over the last few decades at ABC and just throughout your life, so that's going to be really exciting. Before we get started, though, I want to just tell the audience we are at Empire, which is a local restaurant bar in the Naperville area. So if you hear background noise, excuse us. It's normal. We're, we're not <laughs> yeah. moving the furniture around ourselves, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. So uh, I got to know you a bit through your daughter, Kaylin. She's the local um, president of the, the Chamber of Commerce. And we have an event every year, and you were so gracious to attend it a few years back, called Refuel. Kaylin walks up to me at, at the end of this event, and she goes, you have to hear my dad's story. Ah, that sounds like Kaylin. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> she's my lead PR person. Yeah, yeah, right. So and and her and I have become friends over the years and she's just such a great human being. But um I didn't really know your story and then and then she sent me the article of your story in Chicago magazine and I, and it just completely grasped you because it's I think it's titled that, like what you won't hear it on the ten o'clock news about about your life essentially and right. how you've been able to do what you've been able to do. So this podcast, the goal today to me is to dive 
deeper into like I want to talk about news. I want to talk about current events. How you come up with stories. Sure. How you sure. Be, how you became such a great presenter. But I think to really set this up, I want to dive deep into your story and your background because it's truly remarkable on what you've been able to overcome and accomplish in your life. And I know this really starts at a time when you didn't necessarily know what was going on. You were four months old. Exactly, yeah. I had no clue, obviously. At the age of only four months, you're just a baby. Uh, and so it's only in in then retrospect and having others tell you the story that you really learn what was going on that impacted your own life that you had nothing to do with. But I just before I even get into that, Joe, I just want to say it's also amazing in all of our lives, I think, how things happen that are out of our control and there are other things that happen that of course are within our control and that fascinating combination of those things coming together and the decisions that are made along the way often by us and sometimes by others how that molds our lives into where we are sitting here today and i think you'll you'll see soon that we wouldn't be sitting here today having this conversation had things not happened along the way some things that were terrible and some things that were wonderfully miraculous. So, uh, but let's go back to when I was uh, a little baby <laughs> yeah. at the age of four months old. Uh, when I was four months old, my dad was killed in a robbery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. My dad uh, drove a truck for Bond Bread Company, uh, not a semi-truck, but rather back in those days, uh, a delivery truck. So uh, as d when you were delivering bread and grocery supplies to the local stores, you would go to those stores uh, each day, of course, and deliver the breads and other things that they were purchasing from the company. And then in addition to that, you would collect the receipts from the store owners so that you would then take it back to the, to the company. And, and that's how they did their business each day. And uh, unfortunately, on that particular day in February of 1961, uh, there were two young men, and I mean young teenagers, uh, who held him up. He had been held up previously, too. So this was not something that was necessarily new to him, nor a threat that he, he was aware that this type of thing could happen now and then. Uh, but in this case, these, these two young men... They're like um, 14, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like kids, almost, you yeah. know? So, um, and, and I'll get a little bit deeper into that, but I'll, obviously that's what happened. They, they shot him in the back, and, and he died there uh, in the street uh, in Philadelphia. And he didn't even see that coming, to your knowledge? No. Well, to my knowledge, he didn't. I mean, obviously, we don't know what he saw, because no one else was there other than he and the two individuals. I will go a little bit further here without getting too deep into that case and just say that those two individuals, a lot was going on back in 1961 in this nation. These were two young men who happened to be African-American. To this day, I honestly don't know, were they investigated properly? Uh, those who, were, who the police were attempting and prosecutors were attempting to hold accountable for my dad's murder, were they the individuals who were responsible? I don't know. And some people have asked me, well, Alan, doesn't that give you a curiosity? Don't you want to dig further and really find out what the truth is? I'm always interested in the truth. I mean, as a journalist, I've often said that that is the core of what we do. Uh, it is to find what is the truth. But in this particular case, I find it to be perhaps something that would only lead to continuing frustration. Uh, the individuals who were responsible are either very, very old or long gone. And, and I don't believe you're really going to find necessarily what you're looking for, uh, searching deeply into the past for something that has already happened that you had no control over. And I think perhaps it could even become obsessive where you would look so deeply into it that you can't then move forward or for whatever reason, it, 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 it upset things even further than what it did. And that's what happened to your, your mother. Right. Really. She, I was the youngest of four kids. 
Uh, my mother was in a wheelchair after I was born. She had had difficulty whenever my brother, who's six, seven years older than me, when he was born, she had difficulty with his birth. And so when I came along, I, I didn't help the situation at all. So she was in a wheelchair at that time when I was born with, with three older kids, my brother being about six or seven. My, my sisters were older sisters in their teenage years. Uh, and now she's got four kids and no husband in the home. Uh, she had not been working outside the home at that time. She had done some side work, but not, not something uh, every day. And so it really, uh, in her life, obviously, was devastating. Uh, and, and I'll go further with the case then and, and just simply say that the two individuals, while they spent a good deal of time in jail, by the time it was all said and done, the case had been chipped away so thoroughly that neither one of them truly spent time in prison for, for what had happened to my dad. Okay, so let's just leave that. But I mentioned that to say that my mother lived through all that too. So she had a very, very difficult time and I'll, I'll, not even a difficult time, she was unable to leave that behind. I think anyone who's been through a tragedy like that might say, well, you never leave it behind. It, it's always with you in some way. You know, time goes on. There may be healing. You may be able to, uh, you know, to, to move forward with your life. But if you've lost a spouse like that, uh, if you've lost a child, uh, any, I, I, I gratefully have not, but I'm just saying, I know in her case that she did not, recover from that ever it was always with her throughout her entire life and just to unpack that a second so what happened was the one of the individuals was convicted and then on appeal right. he was found not guilty because of a coerced confession correct correct now now i'm getting yeah. back and you're right yeah. you're right joe thanks yeah. for looking into that yes so now we're talking about what happened back in 1961 to young African-American men who were picked up by police and then questioned regarding a case that they may have had something to do with or maybe didn't have something to do with, you know, that a confession, was it truly a confession or like you said, was it a coerced confession? So we'll never know. Obviously, the courts made their decision back then uh, with regard to the case. Um, they, they, the one man in particular spent a substantial amount of time in jail without having been convicted, okay? So, again, uh, I can dig as much as I want into that, but it's not going to yeah. change the circumstances of what happened of something that I had nothing to do with, although obviously it impacted my life to where we are today. Um, back to my mom, though. She, she faced a very difficult situation. She was crushed and devastated by what had happened having a difficult time moving forward, physically having difficulties too. And um, she made a decision uh, later in my life when I was at the age of four, uh, attention, she was, her attention was brought to uh, a school in central Pennsylvania, in Hershey, Pennsylvania, actually, where it was a residential school for kids at that time who had lost one or both parents. Uh, and the school exists to this day, the Milton Hershey School. Uh, and it's uh, for children who, as they say in today's language, are socially orphaned um, and obviously in financial need. There's a financial need uh, barrier, uh, a poverty barrier that you'd, you'd, you'd have to be beneath that, that threshold to attend. There are nearly 2,000 kids at that school today from kindergarten through 12th grade. Some people don't know the full story. If you look on the back of a regular Hershey bar, you'll see a little bit of it. It will indicate that if you bought that bar and made that purchase that you've helped children in need. The reality is that Milton Hershey, the industrialist, was also a philanthropist. And Hershey gave his entire fortune to found an orphanage with his wife in 1909 that then became the school eventually and exists to this day. The, the, he gave his entire fortune to the school all in, in the form of stock shares in Hershey. 
So the school is run to this day through the trust that Hershey established to run the school. It's incredible. And the trust is the majority shareholder in the Hershey Corporation. So the school is tremendously endowed and has resources to benefit young kids uh, in central Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania, in the Northeast, and even here, there are children from Chicago that go to the Milton Hershey School. But it just shows how one person's gift to give a fortune like that has enabled so many young people, like me myself at that age, to, uh, to have a different life than they would have had otherwise. I, I, so my mother dropped me off at the Milton Hershey School at the age of four. If you have a four-year-old, I want you to imagine that, just the decision she made to, to take your child and knowing that you couldn't support the child on your own effectively um, and to take that child and leave them uh, at, at that school. Um, and, and you weren't allowed to visit your children initially anyway for 90 days because they wanted to kind of break that homesickness yeah. uh, type thing, which, of course, is difficult to break. But. Now, you were, you were the youngest, so your siblings at yeah. the time. I know your brother eventually ended up going there as well. What, what about right. your other siblings? Now, my, my, at that time, Hershey was a boys-only uh, school. It. Uh, it is, it, it, when I was there, it actually changed to co-ed, and it's co-ed to this day. But back then, it, it, was, it was males only. Um, in 1960, whatever, four or five. Um, so, yeah, my brother Jim went there. He was older than me, obviously. And so we didn't have a lot of contact with each other in school because the school is broken into age group divisions. There's a junior, intermediate, and senior division. So basically kindergarten through fourth grade, then fifth grade, kind of like junior high, fifth grade through eighth grade, and then ninth through 12th. So we would see each other occasionally on weekends. And when my mother came to visit us, which she was able to do, she would, we would see each other on weekends and on vacations too. Got it. So, so now you're, you're at this school, you are progressing well there. Um, at that point, like what was, uh, obviously at four years old, it's hard to probably dive deep into the coffers mm -hmm. there and remember exactly what was going on in your mind. But at what point did you realize, like, uh, I'm at this school and this is like, did it feel normal to you? I guess is what I'm getting at. Well, uh, yeah, it became normal. Uh, the, uh, I can't even put myself in my own four-year-old mind to say, how did I, I, I can remember, I do remember being at the student home. I was in a student home with, with 15 other boys. So it's a group home situation. So we're 16 kids uh, in a home with a, with a house parent couple. And uh, I do remember walking in and I remember seeing the kids were on the floor kind of watching TV or something. You know, you're on the floor, like, you know, you're laying down with your head on your you know, your elbow is propping up your head just as you're watching TV. I remember seeing that. And I, I do remember this. And it's interesting how you just remember just a little snippet of something along the way. My mom had apparently taken me to the school wearing kind of like a little, imagine a little boy's seersucker suit, you know, almost like a short set, right? And, um, and I remember later follow, finding the fabric from that outfit in the cleaning rags uh, box which we all utilized as students in the home. We were responsible for cleaning in the morning and cleaning in the afternoon, in addition to going to school. Um, I found the material in the, in the bag, or in the box rather, that was used for where we went to find the cleaning rags to, uh, to clean around the home. Why do you think they got rid of your clothes right away? Well, uh, okay, the school provided clothing to all the children for free. And uh, so, but part of that was, is that the school issued the clothing. So non-school issued clothing at that time anyway, it's changed over the years, was not permitted. 
So it's not like it was a slap in my face. It was just that this is what we right. did. You, you, brought, you wore something in that is not school issued, so therefore you're not going to be wearing it anymore. Well, what do we do with it? Well, we can at least use the cloth uh, for cleaning rags uh, in, the, in the house. So, Do you think looking back, the age was significant for you? Because you almost like it was so structured and there was so much... You had to learn. Dis- you had to be disciplined. Oh, it was a very, dis- very disciplined upbringing. And yeah. you were there when you were four. Right. So, if you look at someone that maybe gets placed there in high school, they already have kind of their habits, and they already have their their mentality, and they're obviously probably still trying to to grow. But they're in adolescence; they've already kind of experienced life. At four years old, you really haven't True. much. So, do you think that has had a profound? effect? impact on your life being there that young. Yes, absolutely. It absolutely did. Uh, I mean, the school would, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm unclear as to what their guidelines are at this particular moment, but the school prefers for children to come into their care at an earlier age rather than a later age for that reason, for that very reason. You have a, if you were, uh, well, you're raising a child. So if you have the opportunity to raise that child from the age of four or even the age of 10, it's a different situation than if you're getting a child for the first time at the age of 13, 14, so, which it's much more difficult because obviously you're right. They, they've been through experiences, life experiences already that are formative uh, in their lives and, and, and create expectations within them as to how things should be, maybe freedoms that they had that they no longer have because they're in a disciplined environment, a structured environment. So at the age of four, you're, you're as most kids would be at that age, you're going right. with the flow. You know, the, the adults who are in your life, if the adults change in your life in terms of uh, who is supervising you and who's uh, laying down how life is going to be run, well, you're going with the flow. That's just how it's going to be. You learn to adapt. Yeah. You learn to adapt. So one of the things I've been, I've been thinking about a lot for the last couple of years is obviously the... Chicago and it's, it's gang problem and there's gang problems across the United States, but just because it's so close to home. And you think about when you actually have to, when you have to invoke change or show kids that there's another choice or alternative, it seems to be It seems to be that need is much, much younger than when you're even in grade school. And I know, um, uh, a few podcasts I listened to a while ago, they were saying like, second or third grade is like where you have to really start introducing the opportunities to, to children to make sure that they understand that there's a chance and there's alternatives. Once you're in sixth or seventh grade, it gets much, much harder. And I was just curious from your perspective on covering stories for so many years and then your experience at the school, is there like, do you agree with that? Is there a fine line within that younger age to be able to get, and, and that's not to say someone can't change when right. they're older. It's just, right. It just, you have a better chance. Well, that would seem to make sense. I mean, I, I would say that uh, at whatever, what, and whatever the age is where you can, so to speak, reach somebody and, and provide mentorship and support and opportunity, um, that's better if they didn't have it previously. That, that is better than what existed previously. So terrific. I, I mean, uh, there have been long discussions and, and, and child uh, uh, development experts ha- have debated whether it's correct, for instance, in my case, to remove a child from their biological family uh, and and place them in a residential setting uh, without that type of family support, and, and whether that's the right thing to do for a child. So, uh, 
and it depends upon what that setting might be, obviously. As to, and not everyone who went to the Milton Hershey School uh, could would necessarily attest to, oh, this was the best thing that ever happened in my life. I mean, there were certainly times when I was in the school, even though adapting to that structured environment and what was being offered to me, that probably at times I resented it. Because simply you're in a place, you see, you hear and see of other kids who have, I'll call them, here we go, the normal families, where they're with their families. So they're going to school. They're coming home each night to a mom or a dad or a family member. Uh, and, and we're not doing that. So, you know, there's, there was a little bit of that uh, in, along the way. But I, I would go back and just simply to answer your question that, that uh, at, if you had that opportunity at any age, there's a possibility you're going to give a child that, that break that opportunity that they would have never had. And certainly, if it's done correctly, of course, would, would, with mentoring, it would be an opportunity that they would have missed out on if it wasn't provided to them. But the earlier, the better. Yeah. So uh, continuing on your, your journey, um, you're in the school, you are um, starting to grow up within that school because you were there from the time you were four years Kindergarten old. Kindergarten through 12th grade. Through 12th grade. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, if so through what we would consider high school, sure, right? Yes. And uh, along the way, you uh, there's there's something in that school that I read that you necessarily didn't like, and it allowed you by you um, choosing the outlet of singing, uh, you were able to move into a different <laughs> okay. area, well, right? What, what Joe's talking about is is uh, and this has changed over the years too. Um, so as I mentioned, there are three different divisions of students in the school based upon age groups, you know, the younger, the middle, and, and then, of course, the high school group. And, and when I was attending there, uh, as when you move to the high school level, what we called senior division, the student homes, again, you're talking about 15 to 16 kids in each home, were paired with another student home, and the two student homes together ran a dairy farm. So it was our responsibility every morning to get up and take care of the cows. This involves cleaning the cows and milking the cows and uh, and feeding the cows, and of course, and and cleaning up what cows tend to leave behind. So all of that was part of that experience. And you did that twice a day, of course, because in the afternoon when you came back from school, the cows are ready to be milked again. So there was all of that and taking care of it. And I didn't care much for that at all, to put it lightly, Joe, but there was an opportunity. You're right. Um, those who were involved in music organizations that were full-time entities, and we had both a singing group called the Glee Club and a, and a jazz band, those two entities in particular, the students who were involved in those groups moved to different student homes, which were not paired and did not operate dairy farms because the, the thinking was that the practicing that was necessary and the scheduling of tours and performances would take the students away from working on the farm. And anyone who has a farm know that, that, that the cows don't wait. They need to be taken care of. So, so that was a good thing. In, in, in ninth grade, I managed to uh, actually I joined the jazz band. I also joined the glee club as well, but I uh, was placed in a student home that was a, a jazz band home. So I got off the farm for the remainder of my high school years. That's amazing. And in part of that, I know you went, you were traveling. So you were yes. in this traveling band, right. essentially. Yeah, traveling band. Yes, we did. We, we usually, we had, I mean, we would perform locally uh, throughout the entire year. Uh, but then during our spring breaks, we would, I'm talking the Glee Club now, yeah. more so than the jazz band. The Glee Club would go out on a, on a spring tour every year. We essentially would forfeit our spring vacation, so to speak, to go out as a group. And we would perform, you name it, you name it we'd perform primarily through the northeastern United States and more locally in the, in the upper you know, Atlantic region through Pennsylvania, Maryland, New Jersey, New York State. Uh, I'm trying to think how far we went, maybe Virginia. Um, 
in that area, all, all by bus you're traveling by. So, um, but we would perform each night or each morning, sometimes at high schools, sometimes at churches, sometimes at community centers, sometimes whoever had an event that they wanted to have a group come in, we'd be scheduled and, and booked through the itinerary, and then we'd perform uh, in those locations. And the deal was that we didn't stay in motels or hotels. We stayed in the local communities. So whoever was the sponsoring organization, pick one, Rotary, Kiwanis, a church group, whatever, the people in that group would, would then enlist others in the community too, but we would stay in homes in those communities. So two guys like you and I, let's say we were paired up uh, in the singing group, we would go to one home and we would stay there for the night. And we'd, they'd put us up, we'd sing that night, we might sing in the morning, and then we'd be on the bus again and headed off to another place. And it was during one of those uh, spring break tours, uh, when I was actually a junior in high school, that we were going through north central Pennsylvania and Sullivan County. It's a beautiful mountainous area. Uh, Sullivan County at that time only had one traffic light in the entire county, so you can kind of get how rural it was. But I sang, uh, the group sang at LaPorte High School, and I spent the night uh, at a young girl's house uh, who was in the high school there, actually. And uh, she's not my wife now, but her best friend is. Now. Okay, so <laughs> yeah. her best friend uh, eventually became my wife. Yeah. That's awesome. And I, I have to ask this question. So, for people that don't know the story, obviously, uh, well, you, you met your wife that night, but then afterwards, I think you only met once, and then you wrote her a 10-page letter. Uh, yeah. What, yeah, what yeah. is entitled in a 10-page letter in one meeting? Like, Well, you know, that, that, would, that wasn't immediate, first okay, of all. Okay. I, I, I left that day from their high school. Uh, my wife's name is Colleen. So Colleen and her best friend, Kathy, right? they, they saw us off as we were all leaving on the bus. And before I left, I turned to Kathy, whose home I had stayed at, all right? and I said, hey, do you mind if I get your address? And she said, sure. So she gave me her address. And I didn't get Colleen's address at that time, and we left. So I wrote to Kathy a couple of times, and then you know, after that, I, I, I wrote to Kathy and said, hey, would you mind giving me Colleen's address? So she did give me Colleen's address, and, uh, and then I started writing the Colleen. So we wrote a number of letters. Um, so that particular letter you're talking about, which was the first letter, uh, much too lengthy for a first letter. <laughs> but um, that, that letter began a writing relationship. We didn't live close together at all. We were yeah. probably, I mean, from where she is to where her she, where she was to where her she is, is at least a three-hour drive. Okay. Um, so we wrote back and forth, and you know, you got to rewind here a little bit. Remember, there's exactly no, there's, yeah, there's no, no email, there's no or, social media, yeah. there's no email, there's no way to communicate with somebody, there's no mobile phone. Yeah, why don't you just text her? <laughs> uh, this is back in the this is back in the days where where people would say, "That's a long distance call." Yeah, you know? I mean, because it costs yeah. more. It costs more sure. to dial out of your local area, and and it was like the meter was running whenever you were making a phone call. So we wrote a lot of letters to each other. Uh, we I've kept them. We have them. Oh, that's, that's there's amazing. a lot of letters there. A lot of letters, Joe. And you've been married for thirty seven plus years. More now? than that. This than that this June will be married forty years. Wow, forty. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. That's Thank amazing. you. Thank you. Congrats to her, too. Yeah. <laughs> congrats, Colleen. We've yeah. made it. Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful journey, Joe. I, I want to take it back to what I said in the beginning, though, too. And we've only talked about a number of things along the way, but how something happens in a life that then leads to another thing happening and another thing happening and another decision made and another decision made. 
I have three kids right now. And I have three grandchildren right now. My three adult children, I mean, you've mentioned Kaylin already, uh, who is the president and CEO of the Naperville Chamber of Commerce. Uh, my daughter, Kiera, younger than Kaylin, obviously, it works for Google in Seattle. She's a software engineer. My son, Kian, lives in Chicago. He's an accomplished artist and amazing photographer and is working digitizing uh, archival material for people so they have them as keepsakes right now. And it's just, and I'm, I should add as well uh, that, that Kiera was born in China. And Kian was born in South Korea. So um, they're an awesome family. None of that happens and bringing us here to today without every step that happened along the way. It's yeah. fascinating to me. Two things I've, I always say and I think about is life doesn't happen to you, it happens for you, It's mm. one. And second is uh, the dots always connect uh, behind you. They don't necessarily connect in front of you. So you don't know everything that you're going through and the purpose for it, but you can look back and say, wow, this is why this happened. Like me on the assembly line, started on the assembly line right. when, I was, right. when I was 20 years yeah. old For as, a, yes. as a young father and no idea what I was doing. But if I didn't have that job, it w I would have not have been able to go to school while working on the assembly line to get the job at Ford Motor Company to be a car dealer for a few years to create a digital marketing company focused on automotive. So it's, yes. like, it's like you go backwards and it's like, yes, that makes sense. But when you're going through it, you necessarily don't know. And that's no, why no. it's, it's, it's forward progress. It's yes. progress over perfection. It's going every, these, every little decision that you take or make in life is a step toward the direction you want to go in. And, and I couldn't agree with you more. And, and uh, I'd also say too, that uh, I'm, I know you're a very goal oriented person and so am I. Um, so you're moving towards something in, in your immediate future and you may have a long-term goal as well, but it's things may happen along the way that, that modify your plan. Uh, but what I want to say is this, it's amazing as we're sitting here today that probably neither one of us could have written this script. You, you couldn't have oh, sat down right. back there when you got your job at Ford originally and said, here's what I'm going to do and here how this, here's how this is going to play out and I'm going to make that happen. I could have never done that, uh, right. sat down at whatever age and said, I'm going to write this out, what's going to happen here, and we're going to be sitting here at this table today discussing it. Uh, it there's just no way. And that's a wonderful, miraculous type of experience that is life itself. Um, so I love it. It, it truly is. So, it. so talking about those steps, then how did you go from being in the traveling glee club to broadcast journalism? I was always interested in communication, always interested in a, a message, uh, in, in conveying information. I was obviously back in high school, uh, that's those are performance oriented types of activities that you're involved in, whether you're playing a saxophone in the jazz band or if you're singing in a glee club. So that was interesting to me, interesting to me as well. I would say probably by the time I was in my senior year in high school, I had at that time a particular fascination with television and radio, even though I didn't know a whole lot about it. But I can recall even when I would go um, home to Philadelphia. Isn't that interesting? Mm. That Hershey you know, home was always where you were from, not where you were. Even though I will say at Milton Hershey school, we referred to it as the home in quotes. And you know, it's kind of interesting. Anyway, when I'd go home to Philadelphia on visitation for, you know, to visit my mom or on vacations in Philly, in the Roxborough neighborhood, which is the highest point in the city of Philadelphia are all the broadcast towers. And if you, anyone who's familiar with Philly knows this, as you drive down the Schuylkill Expressway, you see those, those towers in the evening with the lights. They're all grouped and they're all going at the same time in the same way we'd look at the Willis Tower or Hancock here in Chicago, although there they're all in one spot. 
And it was just mesmerizing to me. I was like, this is, how does this happen? How, how is it that somebody can speak like we are here and be heard and seen by others at quite a distance away? And you can convey this uh, ideas and, and information and experiences to people through the air at that time. It was fascinating to me. And even at Hershey, we were allowed to, at Hershey, have... Um, when you were going to bed at night, you could have, uh, like if you had a transistor radio, if you even know what those are, a transistor radio you know, where, you could, where you could dial up stations and you could listen for a few minutes, even like 15 minutes before they said, okay, everybody, you know, every, all, all things off or you'd be up to all night listening to something which you couldn't do. Um, I can remember there uh, listening to AM radio at that time. And if you're familiar with AM radio in the summertime in particular, the, the broadcast waves have the ability to skip kind of over the atmosphere so you can you can hear places at a distance that you would normally not be able to hear in your local area. So what I'm getting to is even at Hershey, I could dial in at night and I could hear, it would fade in and out, but you could hear WCFL, the Chicago Federation of Labor, which that radio station at that time was broadcasting from the Marina Towers downtown on the Chicago River. But you could listen in. And here I am in Hershey, Pennsylvania, being able to catch a glimpse and hear what do people what are they listening to in Chicago what are they talking about in Chicago uh, it's just amazing it was like you get to travel by simply tuning in something and listening to it and that fascinated me and it's it's ironic that actually today when I go to work each day I'm one block away from where that broadcast tower right. once was uh, for WCFL at, Mar at Marina City um, so I had an interest in that and and there were some family friends that had mentioned to my mom. They, they, they were one person in, in, in particular who was a mentor to me who had clipped out articles from individuals who were interested in this kind of field. For instance, basically, where did they go to school? Where did they get the training for this? What did they study? And he brought some of those to my mother's attention. And, uh, and eventually, uh, they brought Ithaca College to my attention, uh, which was a school that I was not familiar with. Uh, but I wound up going to school there. And it was at that, again, there's a life decision. That was a tremendous gift. Ithaca had and still does have a tremendous journalism and communications program that really is awesome academically and tremendous on the practical side, too. Um, uh, obviously, I graduated from there. Uh, and uh, uh, interestingly enough, uh, David Muir, our, our news anchor on the National mm -hmm. News, ABC News, graduated from Ithaca College. Uh, Bob Iger, our former CEO of the Walt yeah. Disney Company, graduated yeah. from Ithaca College. So while it may not be necessarily well-known here in the Chicago area, it's very well-known in the industry and uh, nationally, too. Yeah, Very cool. Um, so then you've been on ABC for the last... <laughs> 30 so we my wife and i came here right after we got married okay so uh, we were married in june and we arrived in chicago in october of 1982 so do right. the math quickly it's easy yeah this october 40 years i will have worked for abc and now disney abc for 40 years i'll be honest with you I, before i came over here this morning i stopped by a drive through place to get a, a cup of coffee yeah and it's a guy i see pretty frequently there who's who's at the dunkin donuts yeah right the dunkin donuts that right. guy's awesome mr b he's terrific yeah. way to go mr b uh, there you go there's a shout out yeah so so he for some reason he says what kind of day you have i said i'm having a great day because yeah he goes man how long you've been how long you've been working there and i says oh you wouldn't believe it i said you know this october it'll be 40 years he goes 40 years <laughs> Shh, he finished, <laughs> he finished the word, but, but it was, uh, it was like, uh, he, he, he was almost like, I can't believe that. I can't even comprehend it. And honestly, Joe, sometimes neither can I, 
uh, as we all know, time begins to go by very quickly. And, uh, yeah. and even from where we all sit, it, we might say, I can't believe uh, that the past, uh, in the past two years, two years plus with the pandemic in particular, uh, some, somehow time has taken on a different form, it seems to me. But even longer than that, it, it's amazing to me that I'm talking about that, that we're talking about having spent a full 39 years and now in my 40th year of working for ABC7 in Chicago. It's incredible. Given your, your history, and obviously you've been doing this a long time, which is, first off, it's incredible the longevity that you've had in your position and how well-known you are and what a great job you do and how disciplined you've been over the last four decades. I mean, talk about a role model and, and someone that we can all look up to and learn from. So thank you, first off, from that. Uh, I'm going to immediately jump in yeah. and tell you this is a team sport and I'm one, yeah. one player yeah. on this team. Yeah. I also know you're very humble, <laughs> um, but uh, I'm curious though, because of what happened to your father, the first time that you had to report on a story of violence, and maybe it's a story similar to what happened to your father, because uh, Chicago is obviously an area where there is uh, more crime than, yeah. than we want. Yeah, How, very much so. Was that, like, what was that like for you? I... Um I have a keen awareness of the damage that's done to a family when something horrible like that happens because I lived it. And I saw, even while I was at Hershey, I was aware of it, what was going on in my own family and the difficulties my mother and my brother and my sisters were facing uh, because of what had happened. And it, it never goes away. You know, it's, it's always there. Even those who successfully over time managed to uh, obviously live productive lives and 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 find happiness in other places that that aspect of it of what happened is is always present i mean it, it's there's not a we talk of closure sometimes i don't know if there is ever closure there is time that goes by but there's still pain that doesn't go away there may be happiness there may be joy there may be love but there's always going to be that pain that's always there and i'm keenly aware of that when i uh, have talked to families who've lost a loved one like that, or like you've mentioned, the crime situation in our city of Chicago. Even, even I could talk about what we, on any given day, unfortunately, we have to report on. And I really mean, unfortunately, that we have to report on because it's so disturbing. And we, we reach for answers and they're so difficult to find solutions to this. But in this past week, you know, we've, we've have a, a mother who's accused of murdering her six-year-old child, you know? And, and then we have uh, last night, a woman who I believe she's 29, who was expecting, who was killed, who was shot almost execution style in her vehicle in the city of Chicago. And in addition to that, we had two young men, I believe they're like 14 and 15 years old, who were also killed yesterday. Those three things that I just mentioned happened in one day in the city of Chicago. Um, and it troubles me greatly. Uh, I, 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 people say, well, you bring your work home with you. Yeah, your work is always with you. It's frustrating that we, that we have such a difficult time. And I understand why it's difficult, but it's just so frustrating that we can't get a handle on not fixing it. We want to fix it, but, but somehow addressing this to make a dent so people will stop doing these things to each other and be kind to each other. Has crime gotten worse or have we or have we gotten better at exchanging information 
It depends on how you look at it. We, we, you know, we can look over crime statistics over the years, and it, it ebbs and flows. Some years worse than others. I, I don't believe we're in Chicago anyway at, at, at the peaks that we experienced years and years ago. But we are at a, at a, a recent peak, especially with regard to homicides uh, in Chicago and Cook County. Um, the information moves so fast now. The information, well, it's immediate. So, so that didn't exist previously. So we're probably hearing about more of it, but it was always happening uh, in the past. But I think right now, it seems, we, we are experiencing a particular crisis of, of young people that unfortunately haven't received mentorship and, and direction uh, in their own lives and, and economically are, are not well off at all and, 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 in term, and perhaps have lost hope. And, and, uh, and in exchange for that, it, what's been exchanged for that is a different form of, of living uh, that involves, uh, involves violence and, uh, and perhaps uh, one could argue a, a, a callousness in terms of how you view other people and the value of life in general. And that's, that's, that's painful. And, and that's the, that's the interesting thing, drawing the parallel to what happened to your father. It was 14 year old kids. And right. that's, that's what you see happening now. It's right. kids that necessarily don't have their full brain development. They don't understand the consequences, how they're impacting families and others lives. And they won't until they're in prison or a decade from now. And, and unfortunately, like, it's, it seems to be, it's getting younger and younger. And that's why I was kind of asking the question earlier. So instead of me trying to solve for it or to think through, I'd love to get your thoughts. Like if you could create something to help these younger kids have hope, what would that be? I can't say that what I went through is ideal for everybody. But obviously, I would have been one of those kids on the streets of Philadelphia had not my mom make th made that decision that which she knew she couldn't handle me. And I don't mean I was out of line. I'm saying she just couldn't do it. So she made that decision to put me in the capable care of somebody else or entity who then provided me with the structure and the mentoring that I required through most of my life. She was not out of the picture completely. Don't misunderstand me, but I'm just saying she made that decision for that reason. So I think at the core is reaching young people as early as possible to provide good mentorship, good mentorship in terms of an opportunity, uh, but tr staying in touch, um, providing wise counsel, uh, checking in. What are you up to? What are you doing? And, and, and perhaps, uh, if they're willing to listen, uh, laying out the consequences of actions that they may have been involved in or, uh, quite frankly, saying, what are you doing? What are you up to? Do you realize that this is not a good thing? Now, you may be successful and you may not be. The, the, the other side of that, uh, that is those who have, have uh, malintent, uh, intent, you know, they, those, those, that, that, can, that can be a strong magnet uh, pulling somebody, especially somebody who doesn't see any opportunity or hope in their own life. And I think that's, those two things would be key. If somebody can provide hope and opportunity, and then in addition to the, the guidance that goes along with, with working with young people, that would be key. But like you've suggested, the earlier, the better. I mean, uh, those who are, who are, 
who are committing crimes at such a young age have missed out on that opportunity. We can, you know, I don't know everyone's individual story in that way, but somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way, bad choices began to occur that then became magnified to the point of now you're out pulling a gun and going down the street tonight to see who you need to kill. And when I think about your story, your mom had enough wherewithal to put her, we all have egos, she put her ego aside to say, I, do, I cannot raise my son the way he deserves to be raised. Is that a challenge too, getting parents to admit that there's maybe other alternatives for their kids? I would imagine that's the case. Yeah, that, that, that can be the case. You, you, you think, and I'm not, again, I'm not suggesting that, that parents uh, should place their children in a residential setting completely or anything yeah. like that. I'm just saying that it can be the influence of a person who is in their lives. But this takes people. This takes people. It takes right. You can't just, and you don't just walk in on a family and say, hi, I'm here. I can be your, your, your mentor. It, it doesn't work that way. These are relationships. These are, these are not forced relationships. They are relationships that come with human beings, adult human beings who decide, I care enough about this young person that I'm going to attempt to reach them. It's, it, it just feels to me like there needs to be more Milton Hershey schools and there needs to be more of a, an ability to show parents that here's an alternative and it's feasible and get your child in as young as, young as you can if that parent, and if it's right, obviously right. there's more good than bad happening out there. So we're talking about the families that need help or need hope or want the best for their kids and they know they can't provide it. Uh, I can only say that, as I mentioned, this one case that happened this week of a six-year-old boy who was killed. And, and I think if that young boy had an opportunity like the Milton Hershey School, that would not have happened. Yeah. That wouldn't have happened. Um. I wish I wish there could be uh, more Milton Hershey schools. It's a, a, a little sidebar topic as to why there are not more Milton Hershey schools. But uh, when Hershey established the school, I'll just say that he established in his trust that it would be run a certain way. And it was to be run geographically, regionally. That is, sure. serve the local three counties first, then move to the state of Pennsylvania, then to the northeastern United States, etc. But he did not establish it to be a, a satellite program. Uh, that could be duplicated across the United States. That, however, does not mean others couldn't establish right. something of the yeah. sort uh, on their own. Um, but even if they're not, even if they're not, there, there are, oh my goodness, there are great organizations in the city of Chicago and elsewhere. I mean, we're talking about, it's not just the city of Chicago. We're, we're, we're talking great organizations that are working to provide mentorship to young girls and young boys to, to help them. To, yeah. to, to guide them. It's making that connection that may be crucial with an outside, not necessarily, not necessarily removing a child from their home or from their, you know, their nuclear family. Yeah. But it's, um, a, good, it's a good point. There's at least a dozen in Naperville. Exactly. Where, where exactly. So it's, it's, it's not, you know, but they can only do so much. They can only do so much. The, the need is great. I, yeah. I just always, th I think about this a lot and like, how can you, help. And to me, it's just, it's key to, to get to children when they're young enough to be able to give them hope, to be able for them to see the light, to see there's other paths. Um, and I'm going to continue that mission. I know you are in, in 
some ways, but I, I, um, just, just reporting on this and all of the crime, because it, de- it definitely seems to be like we're on a, a cycle and we're on the high end of that cycle right now at its peak. Um, I, I don't even know if it's at, um, hopefully it's at its peak, um, if not declining. Does it ever get tiring to report on this versus all of the positive stuff that's happening? Like, um, I know the headlines are typically the, the negatives in society. So is that self-perpetuating because that's what people want to tune into? Well, it, it is, uh, unfortunately, and we could say it's a bit of human nature that, that uh, I've, I've likened it sometimes in the past to that if we're walking down the street, we'll pay attention to the house that's on fire more than the home that has the beautiful garden out in front. But, but it's a bit more than that. And, and some of these things, we, we, we run a, a, an attempted balance of, of, of providing good news stories as well. I mean, we spent the past few days uh, highlighting the, the great Chicago blood drive that we put on with the American Red Cross um, for two days, just focusing on that in addition to our regular news coverage. But, uh, and, and I believe they, as the last count was at least 1,300 units of blood that were being donated from individuals in the suburbs and in the city. And each unit, of course, has the capability of saving three lives. So that's a wonderful thing that was done in just two days' time. And we've attempted to champion as well um, people who are doing good things. We have a, a whole, it's not a, a I don't mean a franchise, but we, 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 we have highlighted them as being things that we can be Chicago proud regarding. And so whether it's an individual or uh, we had a, a young girl uh, in the southern suburbs the other day who was collecting clothing for people in need and also collecting soup for seniors. So her goal is to collect one million, one million soup cans that will be then uh, donated to senior centers and other areas uh, or individuals uh, who are seniors who could use the, just the assistance of a meal coming their way. I know it's a can of soup, but it's something. And she's six years old doing that. So yes. you know, we, we champion awesome. her. So those type of things we are highlighting. Uh, it may be true that we don't necessarily, if we think of what are the big stories of the day, think of her doing that or somebody who donated blood because Maybe they lost a family member from sickle cell and, and they realized the importance that, that these transfusions make in keeping somebody alive. Yeah. Um, they're there, but you're right to the extent that it's often those other stories and they are more troubling stories uh, that, that get our attention and quite honestly deserve our attention. Uh, what is frustrating at times is that it's, there's so many of them. So many. There's so many of them. Is there, uh, this is a, I can't even imagine and the answer to this question, but I have to ask it. So over the last few decades of you reporting, is there, is there a story or maybe two that really stick out to you? Oh, there's so many. I know. Uh, and some are positive. Oh, many are positive, actually. Um, there, I'll tell you about some positive things. How about that? <laughs> uh, well, I haven't talked to her in a long time, but there's a woman in the, on the south side in the Roseland uh, area who, who runs uh, the Good News Daycare uh, community center there. Her name is Pearl Willis. And Pearl has given her life to helping out uh, young people, uh, boys and girls, but largely girls in this case, because what Pearl does uh, is she works with young girls who become pregnant and she watches their kids after these babies are born in a daycare setting that is wholesome and great. And then as a result, these young women can continue going to high school and graduate from high school and then from there, hopefully, get training or at least a solid life f- foundation so they, can, uh, so they can raise their children and have good lives. She's doing that. You know? 
these are things that are happening every day. Um, there's, oh my goodness, there's been great stories. I've been very fortunate to cover the, uh, the administrative aspects of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the other side of that, of course, was the sexual abuse crisis, which we've covered as well. Um, my point was just simply on a positive side to uh, the good things that have gone on uh, with that over time. I've been so fortunate to, and it just kind of, I wasn't asking for it. It developed over time, but I've covered now three of our Chicago Archbishop Cardinals, Cardinal Archbishops, and as a result, I've covered three popes uh, in Rome in terms of their, what's been going on administratively within, within the Roman Catholic Church. So it's been awesome to be in Rome when a conclave meets and when a new pope is elected by the cardinal electors and there's white smoke in St. Peter's Square mm -hmm. and the crowd goes crazy. It's, it's, it's one of the greatest reveals of all time. So uh, those type of experiences certainly uh, sit on my mind. And yes, there are many other experiences too that are not nearly as pleasant that we've covered over the years. And, and my goodness, the Chicago political scene in the city and the suburbs over that period of time, it going yeah. back to the, when I started back in the eighties, you know, with the, uh, with uh, Jane Byrne, of course, of course, Harold Washington, uh, and what was going on back then with council wars and, and continuing the whole way through to where we are today. There's a lot of territory to cover there, Joe. Yeah, I can imagine. Is there, is there something, because I know you traveled a bunch covering stories as well. Any travel experience that sticks out to you? Well, I love, I love traveling uh, anywhere, even in my uh, free time. Right. Uh, I, I'm the kind of person that if you said, uh, hey, I've got a suitcase, so you're packed up, where do you want to go? I'm, let's go, let's go. I, yeah. I, I love doing it. Um, I would have to go back, though, again, to those, uh, the Rome trips, uh, that you're, you're, you're working hard, but who doesn't want to be in Rome? I mean, you're, right. you're, you're, yeah, you're working amazing. hard, you're up in the middle of the night, literally, because of the time differences, and we're live at... Rome time, you're live at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and 5 a.m. So, and then during the day, you're covering what's going on, so you're exhausted. But it's really rewarding and incredible to be there. Those are especially. Has there been a story no. ever that you you didn't want to cover, oh. or or you oh my gosh. or you you refuse to cover? Put it that way. No, no. There may there may have been stories that that uh, when we were thinking about what the story would be about. And we went out to cover it, realized, okay, it's, it's not what we thought it was going to be, and so therefore it's not deserving of coverage. There have certainly been stories like that. But I'm trying to think. I don't recall, I honestly don't recall a story where I said, I'm not covering this. I honestly don't remember that. No, it's, no, I, I, I don't remember that. I, I think it would be in almost every situation, whether it was a great story or a not so great story, and I'm not talking about whether it was good or bad. I just mean whether the material was there and the information. Uh, everyone has a story. So, so if something's going on and it's worthwhile at least looking into, that probably justifies doing the story in the first place. Now, that may change as the day goes on in terms of how much time we devote to it. Uh, for instance, you know, if, it's, if it's not substantial enough, um, but I don't recall, I don't recall turning down a story in particular for a, a reason like that, right? So I'm just not refusal, you know, refusal yeah. to do it. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I question on how do you report one moment on a very negative story, a positive story, and then have to switch yeah. the next moment to something that's the opposite. Like yeah. how, how, what skills do you have to develop to be able well, to do that? Well, we call that, it's called a tough, a, a tough turn. Um, <laughs> and, um, well, the skills, this is, this part of it goes with the, with the producing of the, of the news program to begin with. Um, 
that really shouldn't happen. Sometimes it's unavoidable, uh, depending upon what the coverage of the day entails. But but when we're producing a newscast, we literally are thinking, okay, and you know, in the sections of that newscast between commercial breaks, uh, as it's being laid out, you're thinking, okay, we need the most important information here, and we're looking at the content of these stories too. We we don't we don't want a newscast that's filled with violence. We don't want a newscast that's filled with horrible negative things. Um, and, and we'll look for opportunities. In fact to to provide uh, a story that does not have that type of feel uh, so it's so, you know what I'm so it's not just as continuous in that fashion or it, you know there may be a story I mean we may have let's say we have three stories a day that are of that nature uh, in some way negative you would say well maybe, maybe that's in one newscast and then in another newscast and then in a third newscast throughout the day not necessarily sandwiched together in a single newscast sometimes it's unavoidable but anyway, back to the original question. When you're producing a newscast, you're looking at that story flow and how thing, and you and you would have try to avoid that from happening. There would there would be other stories that are not of that nature that you might place between a story that is especially concerning or violent. And let's say now we're talking about the weather, uh, you you would create that type of uh, of a bridge. Uh, from getting from one place to another. It, when it does happen, though, unfortunately, it, it may, and it, it, it simply requires thought. It requires, because uh, I'm not just repeating words. I'm not just reading and speaking. I'm really thinking of conveying the ideas that I'm talking to you about right now. And, and really, as if I'm, I am, I see it speaking to one person and telling them what's happening today. So if we're talking about something serious like that, and then it may require something like, okay, well, here, let's talk about something else now. Or, oh, I want to mention something that's a bit better to think about. Or, you know, okay, I got to change, I got to change gears here for a moment. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about something else. Uh, it may be done in that fashion too. Got it. So um, it seems like authenticity is... Um, just a hugely important thing there. One of the other skills, if you will, that is hard to wrap my mind around is how much information you have to compartmentalize so quickly because the news is almost real time. Right. What have you, I'm sure you've evolved over the years there. Like what have you learned from that? Well, I've, I've learned that you can't know everything uh, and you never will, but uh, you can know where to find the information you need. And, and with everything that's going on in every particular day, you can, uh, you can at least be familiar with, with what's going on in those issues. And this could be anything. You know, it could be uh, we're talking about the latest COVID numbers and where they've been and where they are right now. Uh, there's been a lot of discussions about this. It could be about the types of masks that are now uh, being said are much better to use than cloth masks, for instance, uh, in, a, in an indoor you know, communal setting. It could be um, all those types of things where you have little pieces of, of information that you're aware of. You're aware of stories that are being covered and what's going on in the city. I mean, you do have to stay up to date. I mean, before we began this conversation here, I was in my car uh, going through, just looking through. I, mean, I, I read a lot of current events. You know, I'm going through Everything we're covering, I see our email flow uh, from from the work side. I see what's being published here locally too uh, in the in the news organizations. I'm looking at the New York Times. I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal. I'm looking at the Washington Post. I'm looking at whatever I can get my hands on to uh, to just pick up 
essentially what is the conversation of the day, so at least you're familiar with it. But then once you get into it, once you get into it, then you're going to have to study. You're going to have to really dive in. Again, getting back to that, it's not just simply reading what somebody else wrote. It's, it's knowing what the story is about. It's knowing what that story is about enough so that, honestly, if the script went away completely, I could tell you what's going on. Mm. I could tell you what's going on. I may not be able to get into the, d- the details of specific numbers or something like that, but I should have an idea as to where we are uh, at the particular moment regarding that issue. Is there, uh, there had to be a time when there is malfunctions on the teleprompter oh, yeah. or things oh, sure. like that. What, how do you react then? Like what's the, cause I think this, this could apply and be parallel to really anything in life yeah. when all of a sudden you're on live TV, all right. which by the way, I was recently on live TV on uh, ABC to talk about the non-alcoholic brewery I was creating. Oh, terrific. And yeah. I didn't even realize that I said Naperville was a state, like oh, on live okay. TV, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I, right. by like yeah. two minutes. And I'm like, yeah, the state of Naperville. And I'm like, and then I, at, at the end of it, I thought I did yeah. a good job and I played it back and I was like, wait, did I just yeah, say I was, Naperville I was, really was talking about, I was talking about the condition of the town when I said the state, not the geographic aspect. And you can't go backwards yeah. on live TV. No, you TV, can't. So no, like, you don't, there are no do-overs. Uh, and that's true. We have no do-overs. There's no delay. There's, it, there are no do-overs. So, if something happens, okay, a couple things. One, be prepared. Simply be prepared. Know what the issues are that you're going to. Uh, you've already paid attention to the flow of this newscast. You should have an idea of what's coming next. So, and it does happen. It could ha- the camera can go crazy. The teleprompter can drop out. The, your script material can be gone. Um, you can toss to somebody who's on a live remote and we can't hear them. And so now we have to go on to whatever we can go to next. So... You gracefully um, tap into your noggin and, and figure out, okay, here's where we are going next. We're having some difficulty here. Obviously, we'll try to get back to that person in a moment. So let's move on for now. And now you need to know where you're going. So that takes preparation and the ability to, to know where you were, where you're going, what the next topic is, and the background knowledge that you have regarding it to at least make that transition to get yourself there. Uh, all of that. On the other hand, there are some times where things happen and they're so out of control and they happen so suddenly that... There's not much you can do. And I think uh, it's important in cases like that, where it's evident to the audience that so something's really happened here. We're all human. Right. We're all human. But mistakes happen. You know? yeah. uh, and, and, and so I think it's better if you acknowledge that, well, we didn't expect that to happen. But, um, uh, you know, I mean, we had one case, this is kind of silly, but we had one case recently, there was a graphic that was positioned next to me or was supposed to be positioned next to me. But when they took the shot, it was actually over my face. So I'm sitting there, you can't see my head, you can see the material there. And, and it, the director gradually moved it over <laughs> as I'm talking. And as it went by, and I knew I could see out of the corner of my eye what was happening there on the monitor. As it went by, I just said, oh, there you are. You know, so, so it's that type of thing where, you know, it doesn't have to be embarrassing. It's something that, that happened. And, yeah, yeah. and as we all make mistakes or things happen that we could, have un- could not have anticipated, it's, it's more how you react to it, I think, than, uh, than the fact that something has happened. But being prepared is key. Being prepared and is you key. as the leader in the newsroom, it, how important is it for, like, do people look at you? Like, what should we do? And how important is it for people to, to judge your reaction to know how to take those next steps? Well, there's a couple things there. One has to do with what we're doing specifically in terms of story management and coverage and who's covering what. And yeah, so that, that this is a team sport. I mean, I'm one person. Uh, I appreciate what you're saying. But you're the I'm, principal anchor, though. One is, person, is yes. Called? Well, I, yeah, I, and I take that 
responsibility uh, I'm very seriously. I So there's a voice that I have in terms of talking about what we're doing and why we're doing things the way we do. Uh, that's true. We also have an entire management team that is responsible for structuring our people and our resources and our reporters and our anchors and determining, okay, what are we doing this day? You know, okay, they've already met this morning as we're talking here, all right? Uh, in fact, they've just finished their meeting. I'm not involved in that meeting. So all those decisions are made without my input. But later on as we get into this and as I'm looking at the shows this afternoon that I'm going to be responsible for, if I have questions or if I have a, a matter of clarity that I feel needs to be made or I feel like something is written but it's missing something, I mean, that's how I'll get involved. And, and it may be a phone call to somebody. It may be correcting it myself. It may be going out to the newsroom and talking to the producers that we have there. And I say going out to the newsroom only because uh, pre-COVID – we were all together in a very communal setting. And now because of COVID, uh, with distancing and the work environment and such, it's a bit different now. Uh, we have people still working remote, for instance, uh, and that was gonna continue for the foreseeable future. So they're able to do their jobs from their homes. So there it's now more through emails or messaging back and forth where you're communicating with somebody where before it was a much more communal situation. Now, of course, with Zoom and other things, the, all the meetings that are being held can be done through that as well. So it's not like we have to gather in a group around a table uh, to make these decisions. But uh, I'll go back again and say, yeah, th yes, there's a serious leadership role here, but also an awareness that this is a team effort and, and we're all involved in it. And I work for, a, for and with a great bunch of people. I mean, they really are outstanding professionals, uh, which makes all the difference in the world too. Human beings, you know, we're all humans. We may, right. uh, and we're diverse. We're diverse, we're, we're, we're informed. Uh, they're skilled, they're gifted. It's um, sometimes amazed at what they do, often actually. And they're so dedicated and they work so doggone hard for excellence every single day, every single day. Is the, is the we versus me mentality something you've grown into more over the years? Because um, I imagine being in this business, it's very cutthroat. And you you started when you were very young and you kind of have to, well, it would seem to be like you have to think about yourself in some respects. Is that something, the more you matured, you realized the power of a team or is that something you always kind of had? I think there's been a, a, a metamorphosis in terms of the, the definition of that in my mind over all these years. I mean, when I started so young, I probably was very insecure uh, and, and in my own abilities. There was actually two things going on there. One was you're naive enough to believe you can do everything mm -hmm. uh, and do it well. And then there's the aspect of whenever you do something and then somebody who's more uh, professional in, in their stature than you is looking at what you're doing and saying, yeah, it was all right. You know, or, 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 you know, or, or a, a sense that you might have justified or not that because of your age, that, that you couldn't be considered as seriously as those who had been doing this for 10 years or 20 years, you know? Um, so that has changed over time back to the me versus we aspect of that. When you're starting out, there is quite a bit of me, but you're quickly realize that the, the me doesn't exist without the we in this case. So the me, uh, from the, 21-year-old kid that walked into ABC7 back there in October of 1982 became the we immediately with the realization that, okay, you're, you're just, you're one of us. You're going to, you're going to earn the credentials to be one of us. Then once you are, now you're going to grow, hopefully within this organization. I mean, so there's a, there's a me and we component in all of right. this. It, that, I don't, and, and 
I don't know if if it's necessarily on a scale where one uh, you know outweighs the other at a, at a moment in time. I think they're continuous, um, but the we aspect of it is extremely important. Uh, anyone who thinks in my business, well, I think probably in any business, that it's all about me. Well, I think you're fooling yourself. Yeah, I, I think you're yeah, fooling I agree. Yourself. But it it's, does take. A, it, I mean, it's like when you're young, you just have to you have to prove yourself, right. and, it, and you have to put in that hustle. Sure. You have to think yeah. about yourself more. But as you become more successful you can start to really rely on a team. And, well, that's true. There's a, there a comfort in knowing that you've been there. There's a comfort in experience of, be, of knowing how to handle situations, of knowing, of knowing the background, for instance, of, well, knowing history, uh, local history and otherwise, of, okay, this relates back to something that happened years ago. So all of that's uh, important. Uh, even as you may be uh, growing yourself into a, a leader, uh, in an, in an organization. So I've two more things. One is, um, this is going back to news for a second. Cause I, I would hate not to ask you this. There's so the news is all over the place today. Like you can, you can Google anything with anything. You could find an answer. There's so much, um, inaccuracies. Right. How do you know as a consumer who's listening to this or, or otherwise, like, what is real? Ah, uh, okay. Well, this is a great topic. All right, we <laughs> could spend an hour talking about this, Joe. But I, I would say this. I think it's never been more important for consumers of news and information to be discerning and to consider whether the sources that they are relying upon are telling them the truth. Now, now we're getting into the definition of truth in people's minds. I can't speak to how everybody thinks about that, but I will say this. You're right that there is a, an information stream that is continuous and so voluminous and immediate. And unfortunately, uh, it, it's not, I don't, you can't look at each source of that as being equal. Um, I hope. I hope, this is my hope, if people can objectively stand back for a moment and look, okay, I see this information, but where is it coming from? And has, it, has that source been vetted uh, over time? Have they earned their credentials, so to speak, in terms of being trustworthy, all right? And I think we also need to ask ourselves this. Am I only interested in hearing my point of view in everything? Or is there some value in hearing the views of others so that perhaps, whether I agree with it or not, is there some value in hearing that out? And do I even open up my mind to consider that there may be other points of view that either I haven't considered or maybe would be worthwhile at least me knowing? And I think that has value in itself. But as you've said, there are so many, uh, for social media in particular, there's so many sources of information out there. Uh, not all of them are credible. And unfortunately, we have seen where some uh, uh, working, whoever they are, working in ways that are absolutely malevolent in, in terms of simply existing to create discord within people of our country uh, and putting stuff out there that just is not true. But if you, if, you know, the algorithm says you've seen this before and, and you're interested in this topic, you may see it again and again and again to the point of where you say, well, that's what the truth is. We probably have people in our own lives who we've had discussions with regarding whatever, pick a topic, you know, where they say, well, I heard this or this or this. And you're thinking, well, that's not true. But they have seen it as truth because they've seen it so many times. Well, I heard, you know, a friend of mine said, well, I saw a guy who, whatever it is. 
And, and that's concerning because it's important, I think, that we, we do establish the foundation of what the truth is in order to build our opinions on before we even start or otherwise we're just, we're talking nonsense and, and that may have a lot to do with where we are right now with discord and the, um, the inability to bring people together and discuss, you know, and talk about things, even things we don't agree about. So the two keys there are make sure you're looking at a very credible source. And second, try to try to absorb other people's opinions to have a, have um, more of a diverse uh, knowledge of different takes on things. And I, Right. And, and there's important to realize, too, I guess you'd say, okay, with whatever it is I'm watching or listening to or reading about, here's, where are they coming from? Where are they coming from? Is, what is their goal with, with uh, their existence? Why do they exist and what are they doing? Uh, are, if, if their goal is to, uh, to create a discourse or discussion regarding a particular area of thought which only a segment of people would agree upon okay well it's not that you can't do that here we are we have a free country they can discuss anyone can discuss things however they wish in that sense but the realization that that's what that exists for i think is important the realization that another organization and now i'm talking more about a news organization that might exist for a purpose that is unbiased and now i've now i've crossed the line here a little bit here but unbiased in its viewpoint I'm, and i'm going to immediately say that we all bring our individual perspectives into and our life experiences into whatever we're yeah, talking no matter about what. yeah no matter yeah. what so but but attempts to in a very legitimate way show different points of view without taking one side or another especially in controversial issues that's a totally different entity than another entity that is saying, oh, no, we're, we're taking this stream of thought. We're running with it. This is what we exist for. So I think that would be important to ask yourself, okay, wh why does this entity exist? And, why, and they're, if they're putting out this information, do they have a, me a reason for doing that? Is it merely to influence opinion or is it to simply inform? And there's a difference between those two things. So two more quick things. So it, along your career... Obviously, social media and the internet has taken a profound, um, it's making a profound impact sure, on, on yeah. everything. And with that, people tend to criticize more because they can in their, in their little basements behind their computers and their underwear, and they could say things <laughs> negative about others, right? And I'm sure, and there's good criticism too, but. And not all of them are in their underwear, right? Yeah, okay. Right. But there's, there's definitely people that are, that yeah. troll. Like, how, right. how did you learn over, because you went from a period of like not having that, and now right. all of a sudden you're, you are, no matter what you say, yeah. someone can, That's can true. make, uh, and it could be very factual, it could be very short, it could just be in your mind indisputable. Yet someone can rebut that. How do you not let that get to you? Well, uh, you remind yourself that perhaps the, uh, the the easiest job in the world is to be an uninformed critic, uh, and uh, and there's anyone can be one. If we choose to be, we can be an uninformed critic, or we can even be an informed critic. But we can be a critic, uh, and that's that's a relatively easy job uh, to sit back and decide how I'm going to pick a person apart because of something they've said, worn, done the way they acted, the way they danced, whatever it might be. Um, so there's a, the realization of that, to not take it to heart, yeah, I think would be the, the main part of that. Uh, and, you, and you're right in that, the, obviously, there's a, a degree of anonymity that's provided to anyone who chooses to go out and say something bad about somebody else. Um, well, you know, it's, it's, it's nasty. 
it's nasty. Um, and, and and to step away if it's directed at you, to step away from it and 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 say, okay, you know what, this is going to exist. This undercurrent is going to exist. I may not be able to, I can't stop it. Uh, and uh, but the best I can do is, you can ignore it. You can ignore it. You can surround yourself with people who are willing to objectively look at what you're doing and let you know. If, if criticism is deserved, that's one thing. If it's simply so, somebody sitting like you've expressed and they're just simply, this is what they do most of their lives is criticize other people. That's a totally different matter completely. Mm-hmm. So, you know, is there, is there any truth to the criticism that's being levied, you know, levied at somebody or, or no? Is it something that's just, okay, whatever. Somebody's just spouting off and using their opportunity anonymously to take somebody down. Yeah. That's not healthy. Uh, right. But uh, uh, for, if it's directed at you to, yeah, to ignore it as best as you can. And then maybe set the record straight. If there's something that needs to be straightened out or something that needs to be corrected, well, then correct it. If there's something that needs to be uh, explained further, then explain it. Yeah. It's almost like you can't even win in some ways when you do re- rebut someone's opinion on something so erroneous. Yeah, that's, no, tr- that's true. That's true. You're actually giving credence to what somebody said in the first place just by, uh, by elevating it yeah. in terms of the, the audience that might be listening. People may not even be aware that somebody trolled information somewhere, yeah. and now by giving it that attention, you elevate oh, it a little bit. So often to, I think it's best to just ignore. Yeah, the only way to stop trolls is to starve them, I guess. Yeah. You yeah. Know. So uh, last, last question, because I could talk to you all day. I know you have a newscast to get to. <laughs> I believe they're going to probably start serving lunch here soon. We, so. we can start serving ourselves yeah, here in a minute. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. The, the person listening to this, you've had an amazing career. You've um, been, uh, from what I know, an amazing father and, and husband to your wife, Colleen. What advice do you have for people when you think and you look back at your life? If there's like some key takeaways or some principles that you've you've taken and you think about to do what you've done and accomplish what you have. Well, you mentioned Colleen, first of all. I'm going to say none of this would have happened without her. So, I mean, she is key to my life in terms of being the foundational rock that I can turn to and get honest opinions from and... uh, and supportive, obviously, uh, no matter what, but also willing to tell me whenever I've been out of line or whatever I'm doing something that may not be considered wise. So, I mean, she's key for me in that regard. Uh, I think that's extremely important. Whoever, uh, have a partner, have a partner, have a partner, have a partner you can trust who you know is not just going to feed you a line and certainly is not in it for their own, uh, their, their own mere good or whatever they want to accomplish, but is, has your best interests at heart and is able to say, here's what I think. And, and you know you can turn to that person you can say, okay, all right, I'm, I'm, I may have not have thought of that. I may disagree with you, but okay, I hear, I hear what you're saying. I hadn't thought of that. Um, okay, that's important. Let me, let me, let me evaluate. Let's see what's going on. And, but they're, they're, they're with it in you no matter what. Hopefully you have somebody like that in your life where you know these, maybe they're long-term friends, you know, um, people that you know, they, they've known you. They've known all oh, what you've been through. They, they know you in and out. And, 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 and they can, when you start talking out of line or say something, like, oh, come on, you know, come on. Mm-hmm. Really? Alan, do you believe that? That kind of thing. I think that's, that's really important. Um, I also want to say, I mean, uh, your, your theme here of not almost there, you know, it's a, it's a good one. Uh, and I just simply say, and thank you for, for talking about career and longevity, but not done yet. Not almost there. Not almost there. Uh, life is, 
This, this tapestry is such a wonderful, rich experience. And the, I just feel like there's so many things that I'd like to do and be involved in. And uh, some of those things I already have been and continue to be. And other things where I'm like, hmm, okay. Well, I wonder, you know, maybe I could devote more time to that. So all of that uh, as life unfolds and you make those decisions is important too. Surround yourself with good people. Surround yourself with good people is key. Find the right team. Find the right team. Be, be, a, be, a, be a, uh, a player who at times is willing, uh, many times, to sacrifice. Sacrifice for the good of that team. And, uh, and, and hopefully uh, shoot for excellence every single day. Amazing. Well, we'll leave it at that. And I, just, I can't thank you enough for being just such a positive influ influence in my life and the life of this community here and many others that tune in into you. I mean, you're, you're a shining example of someone that has come from where you are, come from what you came from, put in the hard work, discipline, and still every day are doing it, but in doing it in such a selfless way. So I just want to thank you so much. Well, Joe, thanks. Uh, that's very kind of you to say. <laughs> you know I'm going to say, oh, not really, but whatever. <laughs> um, thank you. Thanks. thanks for all you're doing, too. This is really fun. I'm enjoying uh, the discussion here, but beyond that, uh, what you're doing in the community as well is awesome. Really thank appreciate you. what you're doing. Well, let's get you to that newscast. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Breaking news ahead. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Almost There podcast. It is so great to have you again. If you haven't hit the subscribe button, please do. That is such a great way to support the show. Also, another great way is to share this content with someone. Undoubtedly, there's someone out there that can get something out of these podcasts and you sharing them being an ambassador means more to us than anything. Also, your feedback is always welcome. So please leave it either in a review or on our website and not almost third.com. Thank you again for being here and we look forward to an amazing year ahead. Have a great and awesome productive week.